0: The most memorable line in Chief Justice John Marshall's opinion in Marbury v. Madison is when he says it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Now, understood one way, this is obvious. When a case comes before a court, judges must render a judgment. They have to make a decision. To do so, they have to say how some rule of law applies to the facts and circumstances of the case before them. Marshall's innovation in Marbury was to say that the Constitution is of a higher authority and priority than legislation passed by Congress. If a statute conflicts with the Constitution, he said, then judges are bound to prioritize the Constitution and disregard the statute. In the case of Marbury, this meant declining to exercise a power that Congress gave the Court in the Judiciary Act of 1789. That act says the Court may issue writs of mandamus commanding government officials to perform duties required of them by law. But Marshall said that if the court were to just start handing out writs of mandamus in cases that originate with the Supreme Court, then they'd effectively be adding an instance of original jurisdiction to Article 3 of the Constitution. Since Marshall thought this ran counter to the logic of Article 3, he declined to exercise the power. But in the process, he declared that that section of the Judiciary Act was unconstitutional. The power of the court to say that a law is unconstitutional and refuse to give it effect in a particular case, is what we call judicial review. And judicial review is consistent with saying that all government officials swear an allegiance to the Constitution and that they must all prioritize the Constitution over ordinary law. This is what is sometimes called departmentalism, or the idea that each department of government is responsible for interpreting the Constitution and acting in accordance with its interpretation of its own constitutional powers, using the tools at its disposal to check abuses of power by other branches of government. But there's another train of logic that you could take from here that leads to a stronger conclusion about judicial authority and constitutional interpretation. If it's emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is, and if the constitution is law, then it's the duty of the judicial department to say what the constitution is. If that's the case, then the judiciary has a unique role in authoritatively interpreting the constitution and what it means not just as it relates to its own power, but as it relates to the constitutional powers of the other departments of government. This is the view that scholars call judicial supremacy. Many have bristled at this latter idea. Consider Thomas Jefferson's comment in a letter that he wrote to his friend, the financier William Charles Jarvis, in 1820. He said, you seem to consider the judges as the ultimate arbiters of all constitutional questions, a very dangerous doctrine indeed, and one which would place us under the despotism of an oligarchy. Our judges are as honest as other men and not more so. They have with others the same passions for party, for power, and the privilege of their core. Their power is the more dangerous as they're in office for life and not responsible as other functionaries are to the elective control. The Constitution has erected no such single tribunal knowing that whatever hands confided, with the corruptions of time and party, its members would become despots. It has more wisely made all the departments co-equal and co-sovereign with themselves. Jefferson's statement in that letter is a summary of departmentalism, this idea that the departments are co-equal and co-sovereign and have an equal right to interpret the Constitution. Consider along these same lines President Andrew Jackson's message in 1832 when he vetoed a bill that would have rechartered the Bank of the United States. Even though the Supreme Court long ago, in an opinion written by John Marshall, declared that Congress did have the authority to charter a national bank, Jackson wasn't convinced. If the opinion of the Supreme Court covered the whole ground of this, he wrote, it ought not to control the coordinate authorities of this government. The Congress, the executive, and the court must each for itself be guided by its own opinion of the Constitution. Each public officer who takes an oath to support the Constitution swears that he will support it as he understands it and not as it is understood by others. It is as much the duty of the House of Representatives, of the Senate, and of the President to decide upon the constitutionality of any bill or resolution which may be presented to them for passage or approval as it is of the Supreme Judges when it may be brought before them for judicial decision. The opinion of the judges has no more authority over Congress than the opinion of Congress has over the judges, and on that point, the President is independent of both, the authority of the Supreme Court must not therefore be permitted to control the Congress or the Executive, but to have only such influence as the force of their reasoning may deserve. That veto message was written by the then Secretary of the Treasury, Roger Brooke Taney. In 1836, President Jackson then nominated Taney to succeed John Marshall as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And that history provides a layer of irony, then, to rogers Taney's opinion as chief justice in the case of Dred Scott v. Sanford in 1857. For a long time, scholars said that Dred Scott was only the second example of judicial review of a congressional statute after Marbury v. Madison. We know that's not true now, thanks to the recent research by Keith Whittington for a book that he published called Repugnant Laws, Judicial Review of Acts of Congress from the Founding to the President. It turns out it actually happened a lot more in practice. By Whittington's counting, if I'm reading his data set correctly, Marbury was actually the sixth case of this sort and Dred Scott was the 57th. But the Dred Scott case was unique in its scope and in the attempt in that case by the Supreme Court to settle a divisive national political issue through judicial interpretation of the Constitution. In Dred Scott, the Supreme Court spoke directly about the powers of Congress, the meaning of American citizenship, and the relationship between slavery and the Constitution. We discussed some of this in a previous episode when we talked about constitutional oaths, but here's a fuller background of that case. A man named Dred Scott, who was enslaved under the laws of Missouri, took up residence for a time in the free state of Illinois and then in the Wisconsin Territory, where slavery had been, quote, forever prohibited by the terms of the Missouri Compromise in 1820. When Scott returned to Missouri, he sued for his own freedom in state court under the long-recognized principle from this English common law case from 1772 called Somerset v. Stewart. In that case, Lord Chief Justice Mansfield had famously said, The state of slavery is of such a nature that it is incapable of being introduced on any reasons, moral or political, but only by positive law, which preserves its force long after the reasons, occasions, and time itself from whence it was created is erased from memory. It is so odious, Mansfield said, that nothing can be suffered to support it but positive law. According to Mansfield, slavery was contrary to natural law. It was an affront to natural justice, and it could only be recognized by the court if it had been specifically allowed by positive legislation by a statute passed by a legislative body. The common law didn't recognize it, according to Mansfield. What this meant for many interpreters is that if you resided in a territory or in a state that did not recognize slavery through its statutory law, then slavery didn't exist and the courts wouldn't recognize it, which made you a free person. And as a free person, if you came back into a slave state, you were subject to all the protections that free persons would have against arbitrary imprisonment or enslavement. When Scott sued for his freedom in Missouri, there was a line of state-level precedents that had held exactly that, that slavery is against natural law, that it's unjust by nature, and that people in similar situations would be entitled to their freedom. Yet when Scott's case went to the Missouri Supreme Court, the court discarded this principle. The old saying after Somerset had been once free, always free, but instead the Missouri court held that Scott remained enslaved under the laws of Missouri, even though he had resided in a free territory for an extended period of time. Ownership of Dred Scott by law had by this time moved from the army surgeon John Emerson to Emerson's widow, Irene, and then later to Irene's brother, John Sanford, who lived in New York. It's a technical side note, but federal courts have jurisdiction in cases that involve citizens of different states. So Scott then took his case to U.S. District Court as a citizen of Missouri suing a citizen of New York, and he loses there, and he appeals it to the Supreme Court. The country was increasingly divided over the issue of slavery and some of the country at this time hoped that the Supreme Court would just settle the political controversy for everyone else. Two days before Chief Justice Roger Taney read his opinion from the bench, President James Buchanan said in his 1857 inaugural address that the issue of whether slavery should be allowed to expand into the federal territories was, quote, a judicial question, which legitimately belongs to the Supreme Court of the United States, before whom it's now pending and will, it is understood, be speedily and finally settled. And then he went on to tell the crowd that day that he would, in common with all good citizens, cheerfully submit to the decision, whatever it happened to be. Notice that the way that President Buchanan framed this case was not as one involving Mr. Scott's claim to freedom, but was a much broader question about slavery in the federal territories and the authority of Congress to regulate and prohibit slavery in the federal territories. The court, two days later, decided against Scott, but in his opinion, Chief Justice Taney made three big claims that went way beyond that holding and had significant implications for American politics. First, he said that at the time of the American founding, enslaved Africans and their descendants were not considered to be part of the people in whose name and by whose authority the Constitution was written. As evidence of this, he said in his infamous phrase that the British North American colonists had regarded them as, quote, so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. Second, Taney then gave his interpretation of the Constitution as a document designed to secure the right to own property and other human beings. As he wrote, quote, the right of property in a slave is distinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution. And finally, taking these two points together, he said that citizens had a constitutional right to traffic in human beings in the federal territories. Because of that, he said the Missouri Compromise, forever prohibiting slavery from the territories north and west of Missouri, was unconstitutional. And there's a lot more that could be said of Taney's opinion, including its inconsistency with things Taney proclaimed as a younger man. In 1818, for example, a Methodist preacher in Maryland was arrested for calling slavery a national sin that was counter to the founding principles of the United States. There were several thousand people in attendance at this sermon, including several hundred people who were enslaved. The minister was arrested for allegedly trying to stir up acts of rebellion, and the man who represented him and gave an impassioned speech that convinced the jury to acquit him was none other than Roger Taney. As he said to the jury, "...a hard necessity compels us to endure the evil of slavery for a time." It was imposed on us by another nation while we were yet in a state of colonial vassalage. It cannot be easily or suddenly removed. Yet while it continues, it's a blot on our national character, and every real lover of freedom confidently hopes that it will be effectually, though it must be gradually wiped away, and earnestly looks for the means by which this necessary object may best be attained. And until it shall be accomplished, until the time shall come when we can point without a blush to the language of the Declaration of Independence, every friend of humanity will seek to lighten the galling chain of slavery and better to the utmost of his power the wretched condition of the slave. Now, this is a very different way of telling the same story, and both come from Roger Taney at different points in his life. The same might be said of his theory of judicial authority if you just compare his authorship of Andrew Jackson's veto of the bank in 1832 with his sweeping opinion in Dred Scott v. Sanford. With the distinction between judicial review and judicial supremacy in mind, consider two responses to Taney's opinion in the Dred Scott decision. A limited understanding of judicial review would hold that the Supreme Court justices must make a judgment in the cases before them, and that in doing so they must remain faithful to the Constitution as they understand it, but that their judgment in the particular case does not bind the other branches of government in future actions. So the decision about Dred Scott would stand, but it wouldn't bind Congress to that understanding of the Missouri Compromise or their authority over slavery in the federal territories. Judicial supremacy goes further and holds that the judicial interpretation of the Constitution settles the meaning of the Constitution for the other branches of government, collapsing their oath of fidelity to the Constitution into an oath of fidelity to the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution, not just as it affects a particular case, but as it affects the constitutional judgments of members of Congress, the President, and all citizens. You'll recall that the case against judicial supremacy was taken up directly by Abraham Lincoln in his first inaugural address in 1861, but Lincoln wasn't saying anything in that inaugural address that was original or that other Republicans weren't also saying at the same time. Consider this excerpt from Ohio Representative John Bingham's speech on the House floor in 1860. He said if the Supreme Court is to decide all constitutional questions for us, why not refer every question of constitutional power to that body not already decided before acting on it? I recognize the decisions of that tribunal as of binding force only as to the parties to the suit and the rights particularly involved and passed upon. The court has no power in deciding the right of Dred Scott and his children to their liberty to decide, so as to bind this body, that neither Congress, nor a territorial legislature, nor any human power has authority to prohibit slavery in the territories. Neither has that tribunal power to decide that five million persons born and domiciled in this land have no rights which we are bound to respect. Lincoln, echoing this in his first inaugural, said similarly that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent tribunal. Clearly, this question of judicial authority was far from settled in 1860, and instead of cheerfully submitting to the court's decision in Dred Scott v. Sanford, a significant part of the country pushed back in a movement that led, in less than a decade, to the formal abolition of slavery in the 13th Amendment and the proposal of a 14th Amendment, written largely by John Bingham, that would be, in significant respects, a point-by-point overturning of the decision in Dred Scott v. Sanford. Fast forward now a century and a half. What does the lay of the land look like today with respect to those two concepts of judicial review and judicial supremacy? Judicial review is now firmly established, not only in the United States, but in many countries around the world. When Alexis de Tocqueville wrote his observations on American politics in the 19th century, he commented that, quote, The representative system of government has been adopted in several states of Europe, but we're not aware that any nation of the globe has hitherto organized a judicial power on the principle now adopted by the Americans. And he was talking here about the uniqueness of American style judicial review. But today, judicial review is commonplace around the world. It exists in constitutional democracies of Europe and Asia, Canada, South Africa, and Israel. What about judicial supremacy? That's a little bit of a more complicated story. In the United States, the Supreme Court has increasingly made its own claim to interpretive supremacy and has offered up expansive readings of Marbury v. Madison to justify it. In the case of Cooper v. Aaron in 1958, for example, the court dealt with efforts in Arkansas to effectively nullify the court's decision in Brown v. Board of Education just a few years earlier, which had declared that segregated public schools were a violation of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Here's what the court said about its own authority and about Marbury v. Madison in that case of Cooper v. Aaron in 1958. Article 6 of the Constitution makes the Constitution the supreme law of the land, In 1803, Chief Justice Marshall, speaking for unanimous court, referring to the Constitution as the fundamental and paramount law of the nation, declared in the notable case of Marbury versus Madison that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. This decision declared the basic principle that the federal judiciary is supreme in the exposition of the law of the Constitution, and that principle has ever since been respected by this court and the country as a permanent and indispensable feature of our constitutional system. It follows, the court goes on to say, that the interpretation of the 14th Amendment enunciated by this court in the Brown case is the supreme law of the land. Notice what the court did here. It's a simple argument, and it demonstrates the logic of judicial supremacy. First, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Second, the federal judiciary is supreme in the exposition of the law of the Constitution. Third, the Supreme Court's interpretation of the 14th Amendment is, therefore, the supreme law of the land. The Supreme Court clearly considers itself supreme and ultimate in its interpretation of the Constitution, and it's said that repeatedly since 1958. But is it really supreme in practice? Yes, sometimes, but not always. There are a lot of constitutional issues that never come to the Supreme Court at all or that the Supreme Court refuses to decide. The constitutionality of the War Powers Resolution of 1973 is a classic example that we'll discuss later in the semester. A lot of the work of a scholar named Lou Fisher has been to demonstrate just how much constitutional interpretation occurs outside of the courts, either through conflict between Congress and the president or by legislative and executive responses to Supreme Court decisions. One example Fisher gives is the case of the legislative veto where Congress retained for itself a veto over executive branch decisions. The Supreme Court declared this to be unconstitutional in 1983, but informally, congressional committees and executive branch agencies have developed arrangements that functionally give congressional committees vetoes over agency decisions, arguably counter to the logic of the Supreme Court's opinion in that 1983 case. What does this mean? Well, it means that even though the Supreme Court makes strong claims to judicial supremacy, it remains limited in its scope and contested in practice. Like judicial review, the situation with judicial supremacy looks similar in other constitutional democracies around the world today. Courts have taken a leading role in constitutional interpretation. They've claimed their own interpretive supremacy. This has led to a phenomenon around the world that scholars such as Ron Herschel have called juristocracy rule by judges because so many important political questions eventually become legal questions decided by judges rather than by representative legislatures. The reason for the rise of judicial power globally, at least partly, is that legislators want judges to make the hard political decisions for them. In a famous article, Alexander Bickel coined the term the counter-majoritarian difficulty to describe the anti-democratic nature of judicial review, essentially having unelected judges make political decisions for the rest of us. But since then, scholars have noted two empirical observations— the first is that judges are rarely too far out of step with elite public opinion, and the second is that elected representatives tend to benefit in terms of their ability to get reelected by handing off responsibility for controversial decisions to the judiciary. And so it is that the court is supreme in constitutional interpretation, but only when it's politically expedient for the other branches of government to defer to its judgments. In many cases, it's not just that the court is claiming power, it's that legislatures and executives are ceding it. Remember Hamilton's point in Federal 78 that the court has neither force nor will but merely judgment. That remains true. The court is powerful to the extent that other major actors regard it as powerful and submit to its judgments, not just with respect to the particular case, but with respect to its broader constitutional interpretations. And those actors typically do that when it's in their interest to do it. And so with that in mind, we'll consider next some of the major interpretations the court has given, not to its own power, as it did in Marbury versus Madison, but to the powers of the other institutions of the national government.